Between the 2006 and 2016 census, 75% of the population growth in Canada took place in car-dependent suburbs. Today, almost 90% of the population in the census metropolitan area lives in the suburbs. Why does most growth happen outwards, rather than within existing city boundaries? And what does this mean for the environment, health, and standard of living? My name is Hikmat, and welcome to today's episode of the City in Crumpus podcast as we discuss urban sprawl. Our guest for today is Tim Gray. Tim grew up on the shores of Lake Huron and acquired his love of nature there. He has over 25 years of experience developing and implementing environmental policy change efforts. These have included major shifts in land conservation, forest practices, and climate change. Tim completed an honors Bachelor's of Science at Wilfrid Laurier University and a Master's of Science at the University of Toronto. Hello, Tim. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to come on the show. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you and learn from you, and hopefully the listeners um, enjoy this episode. Um, and I'll just jump in, I guess, you know, with the first question in terms of, you know, the term urban, urban sprawl, I guess, thrown out a lot. Um, whether it's in the media articles, you know, even in everyday conversation. So maybe you can kind of just give us, you know, your definition of what urban sprawl is. <laughs> Take a drive outside of Toronto. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the form of urban growth that we've had in this, uh, in Canada and many other parts of North America, especially since the Second World War, with the growth of the suburbs and car-based culture. So instead of building more densely uh, in walkable communities where people were lived in close proximity where they worked, went to school, bought their groceries, we became incredibly uh, dependent on car-based transportation, which then allowed um, housing to be spread over large areas at very low density. Yeah, yeah, no, that's for sure. Um, and then I guess in terms of, you know, so that's urban sprawl. It's, you know, you're right. It's everywhere around us. Um, so I've been living in Toronto for the last 12 years. Um, and I'm actually in a suburb right now too, like, you know, uh, Scarborough, Markham, that's a suburb in and of itself. Um, and, you know, the car car dependency is a major, major fact of life here, whether it's, you know, you're going to school, um, elementary school, you have to drop off your kids more often than not. Um, whether it's going grocery, you're picking up, you know, a bag of milk you have to get in your car, um, you know, crazy things like that. So I guess I want to ask you, you know, again, it probably isn't, you know, just one answer, one, one word answer, but, you know, what are some of the reasons you get urban sprawl? You know, what is the incentive to build outwards rather than, you know, within the existing boundaries of a city? Yeah, you know, when, once you have, uh, you, you know, from a developer perspective, so if you're the person building houses, um, you can uh, buy farmland uh, quite cheap on the margins of major cities around North America. And this includes Toronto, Hamilton, uh, places in the greater golden horseshoe and then you can sit on it for uh, until the city reaches you so you have opportunities through land speculation to make huge amounts of money uh, selling low-density housing and you don't uh, carry the costs associated with that sprawl those are passed on to society and the future homeowners so the developers of course aren't paying for the um, the costs of um, having families that have to have two cars to get around they're not paying the costs of the uh, infrastructure related to building sewers and uh, water supply and highways that are at very low densities that have to go at long distances. 
So, you know, the, the major driver is the politics of the developer community and their influence on political decision making um, within North America. I mean, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, we didn't know what sprawl would do to our society. And, and we can get into some of the implications of, of what sprawl does. But we didn't know that. We, we do know now. But um, what I've seen, especially in the last few years, is the incredible political power of uh, the development community that uh, makes huge amounts of money from sprawl uh, on a political system, decision-making system in Ontario in particular. Yeah, and it seems to me that, you know, the the impact of the, whether it's car manufacturers or land speculators or developers is very well known in places like the US. You know, the, the public here, you know, I have, I've talked to people about uh, whether it's Ford or GM in the U.S. influencing, you know, building highways and, you know, building car dependent communities um, or even in the U.K. Uh, for London, you know, the shift away from trams. You have um, Ernest Marples, you know, the controversial figure who um, owned a tarmac company and, you know, all of a sudden the trams started disappearing in London, right? Instead, he got cars and growth <laughs> outward, right? Uh, whereas in Toronto and you're right in the GTA, it seems like, you know, the influence of land developers isn't just something that um, and maybe this is just a personal thing. I just haven't seen it enter the mainstream discussion yet when we start talking about land developers and, um, and you know, the, the influence and the power they wield, right? Um, and I guess, you know, you mentioned some of the impacts of urban sprawl. Um, and maybe we want to talk, kind of narrow it down to the current, uh, the current Ford government uh, because there have been some decisions mm-hmm. that have caught the headlines. Um, and recently you uh, you were involved in defeating Bill 66, I believe, um, which was, you know, proposing some changes to growth. Maybe you can kind of run us over, uh, you know, run us through some of those changes and what that what that encaptured. Yeah, so Bill 66 was uh, specifically a bill that would have allowed development to move on to the green belt where all development is prohibited. And you know, there's, there's two big chunks of um legislation in southern Ontario that helped to guide development that have been around for about 15 years. One is the Greenbelt Act, which says which areas you can't develop. So that's a big green swath north of the city of Toronto, uh, links over the Niagara Escarpment down to Niagara. And then there's the growth plan. And the growth plan specifies how cities are meant to grow. And, you know, starting in the 90s and into the 2000s, it became increasingly clear that the unchecked sprawl was having massive negative consequences for our region. So government started to try and you know change the direction of this you know, large ocean liner of development in a more sustainable direction. Mm-hmm. So they brought in things like requirements for uh, greater densification. So you know putting more people with inside of cities uh, instead of building outwards, building upwards instead of sprawling onto farmland, protecting natural areas like forests and wetlands and other things um, of importance in the region, uh, focusing more on public transportation instead of building more highways, et cetera. So Bill 66 proposed to uh, sweep away restrictions of building uh, low density subdivisions on the Greenbelt. And we and and others uh, successfully organized around that and forced the government to withdraw that portion of that legislation. Unfortunately, uh, since that time, we have been unsuccessful at getting the same level of public attention on the dismantlement of the growth plan. So these are the rules around densification um, that guide uh, how sprawl is carried out. So much of the growth plan uh, rules have been weakened uh, over the last two years under the Ford government. 
So now the, the requirement to build as densely, uh, to have as many jobs within cities, to prioritize building new houses within existing boundaries instead of out onto um, surrounding farmland. A lot of those rules have been eradicated or, or, uh, or weakened over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and especially for the growth plan, you know, this is something I think most people who have, who live in the GTA um, or the GTHA, you know, this is something that you see all around you, especially as well. You know, you drive 30 minutes, 40 minutes, a little bit north, a little, you know, in, either, in any direction, really, um, you'll see some of the effects of suburbs and farmland still existing. And you kind of see the, I guess, the, the sprawl of, uh, of the suburbs and the single detached uh, housing. And I guess one of the things I kind of want to ask you is a lot of times you'll hear defenders or people who support sprawl as, you know, it being the solution to the housing crisis in Toronto, um, you know. And now maybe, you know, you can give us your take. Is it a feasible solution or a feasible way into the home ownership for whether it's young people or seniors uh, to, you know, to be building these McMansions and detached homes all around Toronto? Um, Or is that just not something that's going to pan out the way people sell it to be? Yeah, I mean, the housing problem in Toronto uh, is related to affordable housing. And I don't mean subsidized housing or government housing, but housing that's affordable for people to either rent or buy. And that shortage is in places where people actually want to live and work, which tends to be urban centers. Um, This is true both for younger people uh, who want to live uh, proximate to their jobs. You know, there's a really a good story about uh, SNC-Lavalin, the big engineering company, which had their head office out of Mississauga. And they actually moved it back downtown to the sort of south business district that formed on the south end of Young Street, south of the Gardner by the lake because the the young graduates in engineering who uh, they wanted to attract to work for their company just refused to commute out to the middle of nowhere, out in sprawl land, north of Mississauga, not even in the city of Mississauga. And so they had to move downtown. Now they they could have probably moved to downtown some other city, but they chose to move to that uh, area in in Toronto. We also know that uh, for seniors, that there's a massive amount of single family detached housing that was built in the older suburbs uh, in the 1970s, 80s and 90s. And that is populated by baby boomers, all of whom are in their mid 60s to mid 70s now. Many of those people would prefer to live in the communities where they you know, lived for the you know, most of their adult life. And, but downsize, get out of these large houses that are hard to maintain, expensive to maintain, especially when they become single, their partner dies, et cetera. Um, but they can't. They can't leave because there's no housing being provided. There's no townhouses. There's no stacked townhouses. There's no condos. There's nothing except single-family detached homes that they can only get to with a car when maybe they can't even drive anymore. So the housing problem is that we're not building the housing that, that people need or can afford in the places where they want to live. And we continue to prioritize building single-detached uh, houses because the policy uh, environment is manipulated by the existing sprawl developers and the changes to the growth plan that I was mentioning are specifically to favor the creation of more single family attached detached homes on farmland, uh, even though isn't the, the, the type of housing that we need, or despite the fact that there is no shortage of approved land for development within existing urban boundaries. This is total fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then even in I guess in terms of the growth plan, it seems to me like from what of the research I've done in the past, um, you know, the previous governments, whether they've been liberal or conservative, 
have seemingly this is something that they've kind of agreed on. It's been to protect the green belt uh, to some extent, at least. Uh, and I want to ask you, you know, what could be the reason that you know because uh, there's been reasons, for example, like you know, economic recovery post coronavirus uh, recently, or you know, some drastic changes are needed. Uh, you know, I kind of struggle to believe that wholesale just because it doesn't seem like it's uh, responding to the type of crisis we actually, we're actually in, the economic crisis, by building outwards. Uh, but what could be the reasons, some of the reasons that the current government is so intent on uh, speeding up urban sprawl, whereas every previous government um, since the 90s, I guess, have been trying to slow it down? Uh, I think it's two, two reasons. The, the one and, and most obvious, I think, is that... Um, the developers, sprawl developers, uh, bankrolled uh, a huge effort online uh, through Ontario Proud in support of the current government's re-election bid. So when Elections Ontario did their reporting, you know, six months after the last provincial election, we found that for $400,000 out of the $500,000 in Facebook ads uh, favoring the, the current uh, government that got elected uh, were paid for by sprawl developers. So that's a lot of money on Facebook uh, attacking you know, the incumbent government and its policies and favoring the new one. So part of it is just uh, direct uh, recognition of a favor, a political favor done by uh, a powerful industry. Um, the other part of it is that there's an element of the current government that really does believe at, a, at an ideological level that if you own land and you have enough money to buy land, that you should be able to do whatever you want with it regardless of the consequences for broader society. So if you've got enough money to buy a farm and sit on it for 30 years, then and you uh, want to build a subdivision on it and sell uh, sell it for a thousand times the, the price that you paid for it or a hundred thousand times the price you paid for it, you should be able to do that, um, which is all nice from a, you know, a purely individualistic uh, corporate perspective, except as I mentioned earlier, the costs of actually having that development occur there are borne by broader society, not by the developer or not by even by the individuals who buy the houses in those neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So to pretend that housing uh, or new communities being built willy nilly all over the place is somehow devoid of uh, societal costs, both social and economic is, is naive. Yeah. And that's, you know, you mentioned the costs again, being passed on to the public. And that's something that really blows my mind almost every single time, whether it's, in terms of, you know, with land development or even something as simple as, you know, people who talk about the free market and talk about, you know, the, uh, you know, the the benefits and the gains of the free market and, you know, trade and all that. Um, and that, you know, that's a separate ideological debate, sure. But, you know, it just seems like the obvious fact, like you mentioned, you know, even for you to have a free market where people can feel safe enough to trade, when people can feel, um, you know, the road to go off to the houses, to the go to the new suburb, someone's building that road, someone's, you know, you mentioned the other public services, uh, which again, it just seems bizarre to me. Like either everyone is ignoring something, and I'm just, you know, seeing something that is just, you know, I'm I'm crazy, or uh, it's just uh, a willful ignorance of something so plainly obvious, I guess. Um, and in the growth plan, that some of the changes to the growth plan, one of them, uh, one of them is that you know you're changing the projections for population from 2041, I believe, to 2051. So what impact does this have? You know, because on the surface of it, it just seems like you're planning for the future even better. Uh, but what is the intended or, um, or at least that's the intended purpose, but what is the consequence of, you know, planning for that extra 10 years? Yeah, there's a couple of elements of this. So 
in the growth plan, municipalities, when they plan the future size of their community, you know, how much bigger they're going to get, how much more farmland they're going to take inside of their boundaries, they're meant to do that based on projections of the number of people that are likely to move to their community. So um, there two things have happened. One is that uh, the growth, the population projections have been, uh, the rules around how you calculate that have been developed in a manner that is going to result in a gross exaggeration of the projected numbers of people that are going to move to many of the regions uh, outside of the city of Toronto and underestimation of the number of people that are actually going to move to the urban core. So that's the, the first um, kind of gerrymandering of, of the rules that's occurred. And it's, it's, it's quite kind of Byzantine, you know, planning jargon, but that's the upshot of what they've uh, accomplished. And then, as you mentioned, they've extended the, the period by uh, for which the municipalities have to plan for growth. So that means that they will then take in more land than they otherwise would have because the horizon, the planning horizon has now been extended out. So plan for more people for a longer period of time. Therefore, you can grab a lot more farmland outside of your uh, existing urban boundaries and allow development uh, to occur. And that development, of course, can now occur at much lower densities than the former growth plan specified. So it's all part of a, a puzzle that they put together to change the rules in favor of uh, low density, single family uh, housing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then along with the changes to the growth plan, there's also been, um, and you mentioned this in one of your blogs, an uptick in minister zoning orders. Uh, so, you know, the minister's zoning, zoning order for our listeners is, you know, a part of the Ontario Planning Act. Um, you know, you can kind of override um, or the minister can decide how a particular piece of land can be used uh, without any appeal by municipalities. And you can correct me, Tim, if I'm wrong there. Uh, this is your area of expertise. Uh, but, you know, the, minis the minister's zoning orders, the MZOs, I guess, uh, just how extreme has been this rise? Uh, this, this, how common have they become under the current government? Yes, well, you've done your homework well. You understand exactly what minister zoning order is used for, for sure. Um, yeah, minister zoning order use is kind of the nuclear option of, uh, of planning, uh, and it does allow the minister to do whatever he, uh, he or she wants. Um, formerly, governments used them to designate lands or make changes to land use uh, for something that was clearly in a provincial interest. So, for example, um, you might recall when uh, the snow on the mall in Elliott Lake caused it to collapse, therefore crushing their supermarket. Uh, minister's zoning order was used to allow a new supermarket to open in the town because otherwise people would not have a supermarket. Mm -hmm. Or when governments wanted to bundle together a large tract of land to make it possible for a new car factory to move in, in Alston. So it, it's, it's done... Uh, generally for uh, something of provincial importance or under emergency. But this government has issued over uh, 20 municipal zoning orders in the last year. Um, you know, we, we kind of joke about it in the office that uh, you know, the current minister issues uh, NZOs like a, you know, like a drunken sailor. You know, it's like yeah. he gets up in the morning, he's had too much to drink and he just thinks I'll issue a bunch of new NZOs. Yeah. So it's, it, it's, it's clearly, uh, you know, just being done um, in many cases where there's a particular developer interest in advancing uh, a, a new development that they may not be able to get uh, regional or municipal support for. So they just go directly to the minister and, and he approves it. Um, and now, of course, you know, the word is kind of on the street 
And we're seeing uh, developments being driven forward all across uh, the Greater Golden Horseshoe with a trajectory to trying to get a minister's zoning order because uh, the, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you know, I, I can win this lottery too, and I can just avoid being involved with any kind of overall planning uh, just going by going directly for a minister's zoning order because it seems if you just happen to have the ear of the minister on the right day or the right night, you know, you, you'll get your, uh, your stuff approved. Yeah. And it's actually been one of the common themes uh, in all the episodes I've done is this idea of planning being this kind of give and take, this tango between the government and private interests, you know, businesses and the public. Uh, whereas you're right, the minister's zoning order is kind of this, you know, you kind of bypass all the the unfun part, you know, the boring parts of planning and just get to it, right? Uh, which has uh, adverse mm-hmm. effects. Um, and you've mentioned some of the effects in the beginning, and I think maybe we'll shift kind of towards talking about the impacts of uh, urban sprawl. Uh, so one of them, I guess the obvious one, would be the you know, destruction of wetlands and farmland and the green belt and whatnot. Uh, but what are some of the other effects environmentally, quality of life, and even some of the things that maybe you can just speculate on in terms of you know, personal well-being for people, happiness, things like that, uh, mm-hmm. quality of living, stuff like that. Um, what are some of the impacts by building these car-dependent suburbs? Yeah, there's a myriad of impacts for sure. Uh, you know, broadly, I would ca- uh, categorize them as environmental, social, and economic. Um, so, on the environmental side, you just mentioned some of the impacts uh, or some of the things that we stand to lose. You know, as we know, you know, most of the wetlands in southern Ontario have just um, wetlands are incredibly important for cleaning water, providing wildlife habitat, mitigating floods, etc. Forest cover is disappearing, which is why most of the endangered species live in southern Ontario. Um, the environmental amenities of, of being able to access nature for humans are also incredibly important. And when you have to literally drive for an hour and a half through concrete to get to a a chunk of nature that you could actually have yeah. a walk through um, that has huge negative consequences for uh, you know people in terms of their their health and quality of life. Um, we're now getting to a stage of uh, you know, so much land having been paved over in the Greater Golden Horseshoe uh, and increased uh, storm events from climate change, etc., that we're really putting ourselves at risk of continued and ongoing flood events because there's no natural wetlands and forests and fields and farms to absorb all that rain. So it just goes over concrete and into our rivers. Um, of course, uh, the pavement that is covering uh, Southern Ontario is covering almost entirely class one farmland, mm-hmm. um, the best farmland in Canada. So every hectare that is covered over is another hectare of land that we're not growing food on, therefore increasing um, food insecurity, uh, our, our dependence as Canadians on importing food from other countries. And as we've seen just this year with COVID or other um, uh, social and political problems that are likely to increase as uh, climate change worsens, being dependent on far away food sources is uh, another source of risk for the Canadian public. Of course, uh, agriculture, um, is also really important from an economic point of view. And so I'll just mention a few of those uh, impacts. Um, the loss of agriculture means the loss of agricultural jobs, uh, agricultural businesses, which are uh, the largest business in Ontario is in fact agriculture. So whittling away at that doesn't make sense uh, from an economic perspective. Um, people often have a, a false sense of economy of buying a house 
far from their work or for where their, their kids go to school thinking it's a cheaper house. But they're not always uh, good at doing the, the full math of figuring out how much they're going to have to spend um, if uh, it's a, you know, a, a two parent household and they have some kids. Uh, um, both people are going to have to own a car. They're going to have to own a relatively new car. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, most of the estimate, estimates are that it's between eight and ten thousand dollars a year to maintain a car. So if you're in a place where you cannot walk, bike or use public transit, you're looking at between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars a year of transportation costs um, for uh, the entire time that you're employed. So if that's say uh, you know twenty years, that's an increase of three hundred thousand dollars of the cost of that house you just bought, um, which isn't factored into it when you're looking at the sticker price of that house. So there's costs associated with that. Um, sprawl, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, requires the creation of infrastructure that is shared between fewer taxpayers. So property taxes in the suburbs tend to be much higher than urban settings because you have fewer people paying for all of those uh, roads, uh, highways, um, sewers, water lines, all that infrastructure at a muni- that's paid for at the municipal level, fewer people to pay for it. So the costs tend to be higher. Um, productivity. Uh, people are stuck in their cars. So the more that you're not, the more that you're in your cars, more that you're not spending time with your family or uh, at work. And there's huge productivity impacts that have been uh, carefully assessed and documented by the Board of Trade, for example. Mm-hmm. And then uh, quality of life and, and health. Um, it's not a coincidence that as the uh, rise of car dependent communities increased in North America, uh, the health-related impacts associated with um, being sedentary increased. So obesity, uh, lack of physical exercise, um, lack of uh, time to carry out physical exercise, all of those um, incidental movement that people had, either walking, biking, just moving around in a more urban environment where they did not drive a car, all that exercise disappears. Um, and then there's just the, the direct health impacts of uh, the pollution associated with providing car infrastructure, uh, four, four lane highways, urban streets, all of those cars are polluting. So um, there's a lot of impacts and, and, and most of them are negative and uh, most of them are not borne by the people who make the money out of uh, encouraging policies that, that encourage more sprawl. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things even tying a lot of what you mentioned together is this idea of autonomy too, because uh, one of the arguments that I've common, like often heard in regards to urban sprawl and you know the development of semi-detached and you know detached homes is that you're autonomous, right? You have your vehicle, you can drive to work on your own terms. Uh, but as you mentioned, right, if you're stuck on the 401 um, or the 404 coming south into Toronto for um, an hour every morning, there's a level of autonomy you're not getting, whether, you know, it's, you're not you're not free at all there, right? You're stuck every single day for the 40, 50 years you're going to work until retirement. Um, and there's also, I guess, there's this idea of this kind of this, almost a stigma of riding public transportation. You know, it's, oh, you know, it's not, uh, especially maybe not as common today, but in the past it's been public transport was a working class thing, a very working class uh, service provided by the city for people who couldn't afford cars, right? Whereas now it just seems like the smarter decision economically, mentally, physically, um, everything you consider just makes much more sense to be living in something like that. Um, and I saw an interesting graphic because you mentioned the idea of taxes and density um, and reliable services, right? Um, an interesting, 
almost like this three-way Venn diagram where you have density in one corner, you have uh, lower taxes in one corner, and then you have good services in the other, right? Um, when you give, when you reduce one, you're going to inevitably increase the other, right? So if you have low density, you're going to have higher taxes or you're going to have bad services, right? And if you, uh, and the only way you can actually win, it seems, is by building these urban active cores of densely populated parts of the city where you kind of spread out the cost of services. Um, and even just, I guess, on paper, it just seems sense, it makes sense to, uh, it'll cost us to maintain one road with a lot of, you know, apartment buildings or, you know, flats versus uh, streets and streets of, you know, 10 different streets of detached homes, uh, which just seems interesting to me, right? Because this idea of autonomy is one thing that the car usually gets in its favor, um, which it seems to me just isn't the case, right? Um, and I, you mentioned a lot of the other, the costs and the, you know, the downfalls associated with sprawl, but I want to actually kind of shift it towards maybe this idea of a person's health mentally um, as well. You know, mm-hmm. maybe from your own personal experience too, what, what kind of impact does having that access to nature have on, you know, your everyday life, whether it's because you see all these studies on adding a plant into your workspace, right? Even on your desk, having a cactus sitting there will make you just so much more productive and happier, right? So imagine having parks and cities. Mm-hmm. So what maybe from personal experience, you can speak to it. Um, what is the impact of having, you know, this access to nature readily available to you? Yeah, there's good research on this. You know, this is an area of, of medical research that's really fascinating is that, you know, when people are exposed to nature, you know, they, you know, you, you may have heard of like forest bathing, you know, which is kind of just an elaborate <laughs> phrase of like spending, a, you know, going for a nice long walk yeah. in the forest. Um, but, you know, people's uh, physiology actually changes when they're able to do that. Their heart rate goes down, their stress hormones are reduced in their blood. All the, the measures of stress that we, we have for, for humans, we know that they change. Like, so it's not, oh, it's just a nice time and, you know, you're slacking off by going to have a, you know, walk in the woods. Um, you're actually uh, treating yourself to something that uh, improves your health. And having uh, routine access to that changes your quality of life, reduces your stress, stress levels, uh, improves the quality of interaction you have with other people, improve, improves the quality of interaction you might have with your kids. Um, so it's it's not like a nice to have, it's a really need to have. And mm-hmm. removing that from the human experience is uh, has huge costs. Yeah. Um, and even, I guess, something you can, it's something you notice in people's uh, vacation patterns as well, right? People go to places in Europe um, and they're taking pictures in the, you know, the center of Paris and they're taking pictures in, in, uh, in Italy, in, in Rome, and they're taking pictures in Prague, right? This trams and it's a nice aesthetic too, right? Which always makes me wonder why not have that here? You know, it's not, it's not impossible to have that here in Toronto. It's not something you should, you know, visit once in your lifetime and be like, wow, you know, I'm in Prague and there's all these cute shops and cafes and patios. You know, this is something you could literally copy paste and add it to Markham and Vaughan and Richmond Hill and all these areas too, right? Um, which just seems absurd to me, right? It's just something like I was in a layover in Prague once and I'm like, this is, you know, you have streetcars basically. Um, and instead of, you know, giving the road to the cars, um, you know, you're prioritizing the tram and it just seemed like a much better experience, right? Not even taking up, taking aside the fact that you're a tourist and you don't have the other worries of life. You know, I'd rather go to work, you know, in a streetcar for 20 minutes every day than drive for an hour, right? Even if I'm don't have the car and I don't have that quote unquote personal autonomy. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting you mentioned that too. And then even in uh, this idea of meditation and uh, mindfulness, you know, it's something that's been popping up a lot in terms of mental health where you have, 
you know, it helps to be, and this research on this too, it helps to be mindful of the world around you and your place in the world around you. Um, and whether some of the listeners, you know, not everyone's religious or believes in uh, some of that, but even this idea of mindfulness, even the secular idea of mindfulness, right? If you see, for example, a tree and you see its leaves, right? There's a subconscious kind of acknowledgement of something greater than you, right? There's this idea of nature and the world around you rather than living in this concrete jungle and it's everyone head down, go to work, you know, drive and uh, be stuck in traffic. Um, but yeah, so you've mentioned a lot of these, I guess, impacts of urban sprawl. We've kind of talked about why it happens and the uh, the processes behind it. But maybe I guess for the last bit, last, last portion of this episode, we can talk about you know some of the solutions um, or the alternatives that you can uh, that we can come up with, right? Because it's something that um, you know you've you spent your you spent a long time in advocacy and you know environmental work. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about. What every other, what everyone can do in terms of, you know, making sure urban sprawl isn't something that continues unchecked forever and ever. Yeah, there's a number of things. I mean, a lot of this stuff is, uh, you know, kind of policy heavy, but it always comes down to actually playing out in real places and real communities. And you know, a good example right now of a, a very live debate that's taking place in Brampton is that, um, you know, they're going to be expanding their western boundary towards Georgetown. Uh, Brampton's one of the fastest growing cities in Canada, if not the fastest growing, actually. Um, the provincial government, of course, wants to uh, build a huge four-lane highway called the Highway 413 that's going to go from Milton up the west side of Brampton and across the north side and over to the 400. But many people in Brampton, including the planning department, and it seems like city council is headed in this direction, would instead want a dense urban boulevard to be there so that they can build a denser city that has some of the characteristics of those cities in Europe that you were describing. You know, uh, five-story buildings, apartment buildings, condos, with storefronts on the bottom, cafes, streets, bike paths, places for cars too, because this is North America and, you know, transition from Brampton to downtown Prague probably yeah. isn't gonna happen overnight. But, um, but a lot of the elements of urban form that we know that we need and, uh, you know, the province is saying, you know, we're not interested. We want a four lane highway through farmland surrounded by cookie cutter uh, houses. Um, but, you know, so you know, that's the place for people to organize, I think, is that don't allow your municipal councils to go along with uh, the developer pressure. Um, you know, you know, if you're really ambitious, run for city council and uh, organize yourself in a way where you're you agree with your friends that you're going to get elected without taking developer money for your, yeah. for your contributions to, to get elected. I mean, we didn't talk about that too much, but the, the developer influence of municipal elections is brutal as well. Um, they're basically bankrolling most of the councillors who then owe them and then pass pro-sprawl plans. But some cities are waking up. They, they just can't afford it. They can't afford the cost of this infrastructure. Their citizens want something different. And a lot of the places that we formerly thought as the you know the center of sprawl are are changing their mind. I mean, even Hazel McCallion, the former mayor of of Mississauga, yeah. was mayor for like 175 years. Um, you know, she at the end of her career said she regretted uh, how much sprawl that she imposed on Mississauga, and she wanted to see it become more urban and more dense, which it's now in the process of trying to recreate. It's obviously much easier to build that density from the outset rather than than trying to retrofit a, a suburb that's full of cul-de-sacs and, and no capacity for public transit. 
So organizing local, locally, talk to your neighbors, think about what kind of community you would like. Uh, do you like living this uh, pretend autonomous life where you don't uh, have any access to public transit and you have to drive absolutely everywhere? Or would you like something different for the future of your city? And and uh, you know, think about how you might want to work with your neighbors around that. Um, all, all politics are local. And this issue in particular uh, helps to get solved by working locally. Because if there's enough of us who talk about these issues, recognize that sprawl is as Diane Sachs, the, you know, the former environment commissioner in Ontario said, it's like Ontario's tar sands, right? Like this is mm-hmm. our environmental nightmare. And you're really right. You, you talked at the beginning of this discussion about how people seem oblivious to it. I think people are inured to it. They think it's inevitable. It's inevitable we'll just build another ring road around Toronto and fill it up with, with suburbs instead of doing something different. And there's no reason we have to. We could do something completely different like other parts of the world are, and we should. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just maybe on one final thing, you kind of you, you mentioned it uh, in the in the context of Markham, for example. So I'm in Markham. Uh, you know, for a lot of the councillors, like their finances are public, their campaign finances, and it's something absurd, like I think 95% of donations from outside of Markham uh, coming in, right? So that's an obvious kind of, um, and it just seems like no one cares uh, because the, first of all, no one even votes in municipal mm-hmm. politics. You have turnout rates of 28%. In the recent election, it was 28%, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, that wouldn't be acceptable in a high school election, right? Because the class would probably redo it, you know, and you have <laughs> councillors going up um, and running the city for mm-hmm. five, six years. Um, and then even things like, you know, when I go for a run or whatever, you know, I'm going over sometimes the bridge for a highway, right? Um, and if you're not in the rush hour, you'll see all that space, right? You know, for apart from four or five hours of the day, it's empty. You know, the roads just stand there mm-hmm. waiting to be used, right? You have this empty, almost wasteland, like this uh, dystopic kind of images of empty roads for most of the day, uh, you know, if not majority of the day. Uh, but yeah, definitely. So I think that's amazing advice to get involved locally because that is where politics are. Um, and, you know, I'll just end off by, you know, thanking you once again for coming on to the podcast. Um, it's been a pleasure. It's honestly been one of my favorite episodes to record. Uh, I learned a lot. I had a great time. Um, and maybe you can kind of end off with where uh, listeners can maybe keep up with your blog or, you know, follow you on social media, anything like that you want to plug. Uh, you know, the floor is yours. Great. Thanks so much. Yeah, I really enjoyed this too. It's uh, it's it's great to talk about sprawl and how to solve it. Um, yeah, for folks who want to learn more about uh, the work that we do on uh, this issue and you know, how we talk about smart communities and about things that can be done differently, you can uh, visit our uh, livable community section of our website at environmentaldefense.ca. Um, we have lots of uh, interactive kind of materials there, uh, stuff you can download. Um, we actually have a new report out um, that looks at the $6 billion the provincial government plans to spend on that highway I was talking about and all of the public transit that we could build instead. It would be, it's basically like, like your dream list of public transit, what you could do in the Greater Golden Horseshoe for that price. So there's lots of information there. Um, please join us. And uh, there's uh, a good community of folks who are working on this issue and, and you can be part of it. And so thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. That wraps up today's episode. You can follow Tim on Twitter at Canada Gray. Remember to also follow our podcast at City and Crumpets for updates and new episodes. I'm always looking for feedback, so feel free to drop me a line on Twitter. Till next time. Bye-bye.